Welcome to the Not Old Better Show Inside Science author interview series on radio and podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Harry's, created for a different shaving experience and Next Evo Naturals. Better science, smarter CBD. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and we have an excellent program about the egg. Our guest today, author, science writer, and journalist Lizzie Stark, and I will discuss the egg's unconventional history of the world's largest cellular workhorse from chickens to penguins, from art to crime and more. I will introduce Lizzie Stark in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any shows recently, last week was our 700th episode for Women's History Month, and I spoke with returning guest, Smithsonian Associate, journalist, and author Rebecca Boggs-Roberts, who has written the new book, Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. Two weeks ago, I spoke with number one New York Times best-selling author Mark Greeny about his new book, part of the Gray Man series, Burner, already a bestseller. Wonderful subjects for our Not Old Better Show audience. And if you miss those shows along with any others, you can go back and check them out along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. From Mali to Finland, mythologies around the globe have invested the egg with powers of regeneration and fecundity, often ascribing the origin of the world to a cosmic egg. An oracle to Romans, fought over by gold rush gangs, used as the foundation of the clown egg registry and blasted into space. The egg has taken on larger proportions than, say, the ovum of an ostrich. Lizzie Stark and I will discuss the egg's deep meanings, innumerable uses, and metabolic importance, along with all of Lizzie Stark's amazing research from her new book, Egg, A Dozen Overtures. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast author, science writer, and journalist, Lizzie Stark. Lizzie Stark, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's good to talk to you. I'm looking forward to it. You've shared with me your new book, Egg, A Dozen Overtures. I think that's a fantastic title, and, and uh, it, it's been a wonderful book. I've really enjoyed it. You, you have this wonderful sense about you, very science, and there's a good sense of humor that I can tell that comes out uh, in, the, in the book. And, and I, I want to just start maybe by, by asking you the, the, just the very direct question. You know, many of my audience, they're going to know eggs as – you know, what we all kind of know is, is nutrition, whether they're soft-boiled or part of souffles or omelets. Why are eggs so much more, and in particular, so much more to you? What, what drew you to this subject? Well, um, there are a lot of things that drew me to this subject. I mean, eggs, yes, they are an amazing ingredient in the kitchen. <laughs> and they're part of my, um, my foundational mythology uh, with my dad, my relationship with my dad is founded on eggs. Um, my dad loves to cook. And when I was a little girl around seven or eight, um, on Saturday mornings, I would go have a swim lesson and then I would come home and my dad gave me lessons on how to cook eggs. Hmm. And we did, um, we did some semi-scientific experiments you know, boiling eggs for 30 second intervals to try to identify the perfect sauce, the, blah, to try to identify the perfect soft boiled specimen. 
And um, ever since, he and I have been cooking together, and it's just one of the mediums of our relationship. So when I look back on my relationship with my dad, it all kind of comes down to the egg. <laughs> and interestingly, you know, it's not, it doesn't just come down to the egg for me, but it really, in a certain kind of way, it comes down to the egg for um, all of human culture. Uh, one of the pleasures of researching this book was discovering that there are cosmic egg myths in like a huge number of world mythologies, um, the cosmic egg that births, if not the world itself, then the creator of the world. Um, so that was absolutely incredible. And then um, because eggs are so ubiquitous, there are so many species that lay eggs um, or reproduce sexually using ova. Um, which is a term for like, not a hard shelled egg, but, um, one of the two reproductive cells. Uh, anyway, um, there are so many eggs all around us. Um, they're so plentiful that it's kind of like, uh, you know, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. <laughs> well, when the world, <laughs> when the world gives you eggs, like you put them in concrete and you send them to space, um, and you, uh, you know, you gather them on um, bird encrusted islands in the Pacific. Um, and so I was really quite surprised by the myriad uses for eggs that I uncovered as I was researching this book. You have this really interesting way of putting it too. And you, you kind of reference the cosmic creator. You, you, you call the inside of the egg the universe in a shell. I thought that was really interesting. Tell us about what you mean there. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, I mean a few different things, I guess. On the one hand, it uh, is. On the one hand, we can think about the cosmic egg, which is that again that recurring figure in um, world myth, where the universe is literally contained into an egg. You know, the eggs break, and the yolk becomes the sun, and the shells become the earth and the whites become the water or, you know, there are many kind of variations on that theme. So metaphorically it is the universe inside a shell. And then, um, and then I got kind of inspired by physicists. So, uh, I live with a physicist. I'm married to a physicist and, uh, I kind of think that the big bang is, is almost like I see cosmic egg uh, imagery inside of it, <laughs> right? Um, this one moment in time uh, where it explodes and it lets out the universe. At one point, I even thought there was even some speculation that the universe might be egg-shaped. And I actually <laughs> I actually called uh, like a science explainer, an old colleague of my husband's. <laughs> and I learned, mm -hmm. unfortunately, the universe is not egg-shaped. It's more saddle-shaped, like a Pringle. So that was a great literary disappointment, but I, it was kind of delightful. <laughs> and, and a food learn. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then also like eggs are the origin point of, of most life. So, you know, one minute, uh, you've got a bird egg and then, or you've got an ova and then, um, and then suddenly life is beginning and replicating. I read, um, I read the book of the, guy who cloned Dolly the sheep, hmm. um, about how he cl cloned Dolly the sheep. 
And he talked about how you start out with this fertilized egg um, and it's inert. And then you just put a little jolt of electricity into it and that jump starts it. And suddenly it begins proliferating into an embryo. And so, um, so in that way too, I think the egg is a uh, universe inside a shell. And then there's a religious meaning where, um, I mean, we could talk a lot about Christian syncretism <laughs> and the way Christianity has written itself onto the egg as a symbol. But, um, some scholars said that the shell, the white and the yoke represent the Holy Trinity of father, son, and Holy ghost. And so that's kind of, that's, that's what I investigated as I was writing this book. And it kind of turned out to be true, much to my surprise. Hi, it's Paul. I mentioned our sponsor today, Harry's, who's created a different shaving experience. I don't know if you've ever felt like you've been overcharged for razors. My gosh, I have. You know, I wonder if you just even recognize how much you spend on razors in a single month. Did you ever feel sticker shock just looking at the prices of refill razor blades? Oh, my gosh. Why is it that razors cost so much? Well, Harry's razors are incredibly sharp and made in their own Harry's factory in Germany. Most importantly, they cost as little as two bucks per blade. You can get a quality razor you can depend on delivered straight to your door from Harry's. Harry's sent me a trial set of blades. I received it. I opened it. I got some of the Harry's liquid soap. I got some of the bar soap. I got some of the great Harry's razors and blades. And everything was perfect. The packaging was great. The razor is substantial. When you you have it in your hands, it just feels like something that you want to use. Plus, it just kept my facial hair exactly the way I want it with a high-quality shave. There's no excuse not to try Harry's. Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, and they're still offering a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. So don't get overcharged for razors. Get Harry's. Get a $15 Truman Shave Trial Set for just $3 at harrys.com slash N-O-B. That's harrys.com slash N-O-B for a $3 trial set. Check it out. Please support our sponsors. All of this will be in our show notes today. Thanks, everybody. We are just back with author Lizzie Stark. Lizzie writes about science. She's written the new book, Egg, A Dozen Overtures. Put links so that our audience can find out more information about Lizzie Stark as well as her new book and um, much more about eggs. I I, I learned too, I, as I say, it really opened my eyes. And, and, and so we talked about kind of that universe in a shell. Let's talk about the shell part of the egg because that's very special and unique and you have a really interesting take on it. You, you explore what you call the egg package. And I think we all do remember those science projects when, you know, we we were in school dropping eggs off of rooftops, some more safely than others in some cases, <laughs> but they landed on the pavement, and 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 the idea was to that package could protect them. Tell us what you learned about the package of the egg. Yes, so eggshells are surprisingly complex. Um, they, when they're laid, uh, okay. So the eggshell has three parts, I would say 
There is the cuticle, which is on the outside of the eggshell. And then there is the shell itself, which has pores in it. And then on the inner layer of the shell, there is a membrane. And the membrane, if you've ever peeled a hard-boiled egg, it's like that matte thing that you have to slip off to get to the shiny egg white underneath. And these uh, three layers are um, ingenious defenses to invading microbes. So the cuticle on the outside is a bit waxy. It's permeable enough to let um, gas in and water vapor out. Um, and in, I believe in some waterfowl, the waxy substance is in these teeny tiny microspheres all over the surface of the eggshell. And they are so small and closely packed together that they repel water, um, which is kind of cool. So if, if you're an invading microbe, you got to get through the cuticle and then you got to get through the shell and then, um, the membrane on the inside of the shell is a mesh-like layer of keratin. So it's got um, uh, almost like a basket weave of uh, keratin fibers. I think the one layer is the keratin fibers are going in one direction and the layer below it, the um, keratin fibers are going in the other direction. And so a microbe has to be small enough to pass through that layer in order to get to the egg white. And then the egg white is like the moat on a medieval castle. It's got all of this water and these proteins in it and these enzymes. Um, but the nutrients in the egg white is bound up into, in, a, in such a way that microbes can't easily use it at, for energy. Um, so it's like a nutritional desert for them. And then it has antimicrobial enzymes in it. And those enzymes are most effective when they're heated up to the temperature of a mother bird's body. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was just uh, utterly fascinating. I guess I didn't talk. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't talk go, about. Please the, go on. I, I, I didn't talk about the color of the egg. Um, one of the weirder things yeah, yeah, I yeah. learned in this book is that chicken earlobe color accurately predicts <laughs> egg color. <laughs> And that's a thing. And that is a thing. <laughs> like if your chicken has okay. blue earlobes, your chicken is going to lay blue eggs. Uh -huh. um, wow. And the eggs come out, uh, the, the pigment is among the last, I think it may be the last layer, uh, one of the last layers on the egg. And when it, the egg comes hot out of a hen, the pigment can actually smudge. Um, I have a friend who raises chickens who was telling, who was telling me about that. How if you aren't careful, you end up with a, with an egg with smudged pigment. Wow. Um, so yeah. Yeah, the science is really impressive. Your research is just very thorough and and deep. And and so again, congratulations on this book. I, so I want to talk. So we talked a little bit about the inside. We talked a little bit about the eggshell. Eggshells can be very nutritious in and of themselves. Are loaded with calcium, but eggs also have been very fundamental in in research uh, for vaccines and modern medicine. And uh, you found some really interesting things leading to the, the, the science around vaccine development and discovery. And I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, so I learned a lot about vaccine development. It was very much on my mind because I wrote this book during the COVID pandemic. 
um, which I guess is still ongoing. Uh, and okay. So in order to make a vaccine, you need a lot of, you need a big supply of the viruses, um, with which you're going to jab people, right? Vaccines are usually like they take some virus and they kill it or they shred it apart a little bit and then they mix it up and inject it back into you. And that's what gives you the immunity. You're getting a, a weakened form of the virus into your body and it lets your immune system kind of train up, um, on, uh, on an offender. It can, an, on an invader, it can easily, um, destroy. Okay. So in order to have a vaccine, you need a supply of viruses. And that was a problem because viruses are not like bacteria. You can't grow them in a Petri dish. They need to be grown in something that is alive. And for a lot of human history, this was a big, um, a big issue. Uh, the live things that we used at first were humans going all the way back, um, thousands of years, I believe to smallpox, um, where they would either take like some pus from an infected person and inject it into you. Um, and then you would get a little pustule at the site of the uh, injection and they would take that and they would inject it into somebody else's arm or they would blow powdered scabs up people's noses to confer immunity. And this was a very crude method of variolation it, um, as it was called. And it sometimes ignited epidemics on its own. There were problems with, vaccine purity, um, or purity of the virus, the virus wasn't denatured. So it was more, more dangerous than like the vaccines of today. And eventually we graduated to using cows, cowpox and smallpox are related. So, um, you could take a virus that had, uh, evolved to infect cows. And if you injected that into people, um, because the virus had adapted to thrive in cows, it wouldn't make the people as sick, but it was at the same time, it was similar enough to smallpox that uh, it would give you, a, you know, some measure of immunity against the smallpox. Okay. So there's this problem. And then in 1918, there's the uh, worldwide flu pandemic um, that we all still get flu vaccines for. And so viral research becomes this hot, well-funded area. And there is this scientist at the University of Vanderbilt named Ernest Goodpasture. And he um, he revolutionized the uh, vaccine. He revolutionized the production of vaccines with the help of his assistant, um, Alice Woodruff who is, doesn't get as much credit, I think, as she deserves, even though Good Pasture was like very good at give, about giving her credit. Um, what Good Pasture did was he tasked Alice, and this was in the 1930s, he tasked Alice with finding a way to grow fowl pox, the chicken version of the pox, in something that wasn't a live chicken. And so together with her husband, who is also a... Um, uh, who was a virologist who worked down the hall, the two of them came up with this method for growing um, fowl pox inside eggs. The egg is nice because it's a naturally self-enclosed, pretty sterile laboratory, right? It's got all of those defenses against outside invaders already. So what she would do is she would cut a small hole in the egg 
And then she would take a needle with some um, falpox on it and stick it through the shell membrane and into the developing embryo and give the virus to the developing embryo. And then as the embryo developed, the falpox uh, would develop as well um, in the embryo, and that could then be harvested and used for vaccines. And in fact, that is still the main way of making flu vaccine today. Um, there are millions and millions of eggs grown in undisclosed locations all over the world, um, protected by men with guns, um, because the conditions have to be very sterile and, uh, you could really mess a country's security up by compromising its access to the flu vaccine. And in the 1940s, I believe, um, the first vaccines based on this method were administered to U S troops. Um, there was like a, uh, the U S military had funded a lot of this research because during world war one, a huge number of troops had died not from combat, but from the flu. So they wanted to find a way to stop it. And they did. We are talking about protein today. We're talking about eggs. We're talking about nutrition. But nutrition, wellness, all of those subjects are important to us as Not Old Better Show audience members. But wellness is more than just exercise and nutrition. You know, I have found that wellness for me of course, it's more than just nutrition and exercise. And we've talked about that a lot here on the Not All Better Show. But it there is absolutely a physical component. There's a mental component. And there is so much an emotional component to wellness. So sleep, stress management, mindfulness, these are all important aspects, at least for me and my concept of wellness. If you want to get to the next level of wellness, CBD can help. But your average CBD oil it just won't cut it. Our sponsor today, Next Evo Naturals, developed SmartSorb technology, which is clinically proven to help your body absorb CBD four times better than regular CBD oil because oil just doesn't mix with your water-based body. The other great thing about SmartSorb is you can get the same great absorption results available in lots of different forms right from Next Evo Naturals. You can try the great Tasting gummies, which I've tried, they're fantastic. They're easy to chew. You can use the Next Evo Naturals easy to swallow capsules. And of course, the Next Evo chewable mints. They're fantastic. They just work faster too. When you need to de-stress, when you need to sleep better, you need to recover from an intense workout, you're going to want to reach for Next Evo Naturals capsules, gummies, mints, and topical creams. Listen, my experience with Next Evo Naturals is I mentioned how delicious they are, but they just work. They help me feel less stressed. They have helped me sleep better, help me relax. And of course, I'm a workout person and I just need that quick recovery. So I really believe that the Next Evo Naturals are the way to give yourself that jump start in terms of your wellness. Make CBD a part of reaching your full potential. Try Next Evo Naturals capsules, gummies, mints, and topical creams with SmartSorb technology, clinically proven to be better absorbed by your body. Get 20% off of your first order of $40 or more at nextevo.com slash podcast and use the promo code NOB. That's 20% off at nextevo.com. Nextevo is N-E-X-T-E-V-O dot com.
slash podcast. Use the promo code NOB. All of this will be in our show notes today. Thanks, everybody. We are with author Lizzie Stark. Lizzie Stark has written the new book, Egg. I can't recommend this uh, you know, highly enough to, to my audience, Lizzie. I think that it's just a wonderful book. Lizzie Stark has this great uh, experience. You, of course, are very welcome. Um, Lizzie Stark, of course, is a, is a writer, uh, has written this new book, Egg. And again, we'll put links so that our audience can find this. But Lizzie Stark also has a real I'll call it an arts background. You you create games and do interactive theater. And so I want to talk to you for just a second about eggs as art, because they definitely have become this cultural and historical symbol that we commemorate. And, and we do that via art. And so I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about your findings and some of the research that you uncovered around eggs as art and what different cultures do with eggs and art. Oh, yeah, happily. Um, there are a million different eggs and art traditions, basically. Um, again, the egg is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's available. Um, and usually it's not too expensive. Um, and so they were used widely in art in a variety of ways. Um, it, they were used as art materials. You can grind up eggshells and use them as a paint extender for example. Um, I believe the egg white was used as uh, to varnish some old paintings and it was frothed with salt. And that was the original kind of glossy finish on early photographic prints. Um, the yolks can be used to make tempera paint by mixing them with pigment. I believe there is also an early method of making paint that involved like, mixing pigment with egg white and then drying it into cakes. Um, hmm. You know, anybody who has tried to clean uh, a plate with like some old runny breakfast egg on it knows how hard that stuff is to get off. And so early artists really leveraged that, um, leveraged that property to make their art durable. And then uh, the egg has also been a canvas for art. And of course, we know this through the long uh, multifaceted traditions of egg decorating around the world. And there are quite a lot of them. Um, in China, red dyed eggs are considered lucky and might be produced like on a child's first birthday or other days that you could use a little extra luck, first day of school, that kind of thing. In Persia, they are lavishly encrusted with diamonds and jewels um, uh, to make wedding eggs, part of kind of a ceremonial spread um, on a couple's wedding day, uh, in uh, a lot of Spanish speaking countries, um, they are hollowed out, uh, decorated, uh, perhaps dyed or decorated with tissue paper and filled with confetti. And then, um, you break them on, uh, children's heads or on your own heads for luck, uh, mm. during Easter week. Uh, the Ukrainian tradition of decorating eggs is um, a really, really beautiful folk art. Uh, it involves using a wax resistance method to dye an eggshell um, with beautiful kind of quilt-like patterns. And the patterns, when you make a, a pasenki, um, uh, I believe pasenki comes from a word that means to write. So you're writing the meaning onto mm. the egg. And it used to be, they mm. used to be used as um, like a magic charm uh, to ensure f fertility, 
happiness, good luck to keep evil spirits away um, in the springtime. So they were kept out. Uh, you know, there were Persenki that were made for like the barn and for the field um, and so on. And that ancient egg decorating tradition was passed down. It was women's art. It was passed down from um, mother to daughter. And the motifs on the eggs were also passed down from mother to daughter. And depending on the practitioner, they the meanings might vary a bit. Um, eventually, Christianity came to Ukraine and then the Christian Easter tradition appropriated the eggs as a symbol. And so then you start to see things more like churches on these pisanki. Um, but they're very beautiful and elegant, and they do still kind of just feel magical. Like I, when you see a beautifully made pisanki, I almost can't believe that a human uh, produced it. Um, I also tried making pisanki for the book, and believe me, like it's <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> It's not easy. Um, and then because of the rich symbolism, there is a huge history of eggs being used symbolically in art, um, including modern art and, and old art. Um, one of my favorite paintings or one of my favorite painting themes is the egg dance painting where eggs, uh, this was a tradition where um, people used to go to a bar get drunk. And then there was a betting game where you had to maneuver an egg um, around an obstacle course on the ground with your feet while dancing. And if you could get it um, into a circle or in and out of the circle, um, then you would win a prize, which was usually a basket of eggs. And so there are a lot of paintings of this dissolute behavior where the eggs are clearly a stand-in for discarded virtue uh, of some kind. And, you know, the the ostensible meaning of the painting is no, 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 naughty people. You know, you don't you don't want to be one of these barflies. Um, but they the barflies always look like they're just having a blast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then in modern art. Um, there are some artists who return again and again to the theme of eggs. Um, and one of the people I talk about in the book is Salvador Dali. Um, he painted a ton of melty fried eggs. He painted full size eggs with, you know, trees and waterfalls coming out of them. And his, at his museum, um, which he designed himself, there are eggs like on top of all of the parapets, like a lot of egg themes, um, one of the more fun things I, I discovered was, uh, that, um, this pair had, uh, this pair of artists and food researchers had found Salvador Dali's plans to create a 10 foot tall hard boiled egg made out of hard boiled egg. <laughs> and they had like specked out wow. everything you would have to do to create it. You know, you'd need like 150,000 eggs and then you'd need to separate them. They got like the MIT lab involved thinking about how you would cook, you know, like a five foot tall egg yolk made out of egg yolks. You'd need staggered iron rods in it. And um, they never performed it. But the essay on this in um, in the Oxford Companion to uh, the Oxford conference proceedings from the year it was the year of the egg was just like truly stunning to read. I wish I could remember the 
the name of the um the, the name of the woman who wrote the essay carolyn carolyn young i think anyway i'll i'll get that to you later um and then of course uh we can't talk about eggs and art without talking about egg tossing um egg tossing of course is like an old custom kids do it at easter time or springtime and um people do it when they're mad at politicians and sort of leveraging this um leveraging this power of eggs uh are a couple artists who have incorporated um breaking eggs into performance art so uh you know one of my favorite artists is Sarah Lucas, who's a British artist, um, who's just been kind of obsessed with eggs for her whole career. She, excuse me, she has a famous portrait of herself uh, with just two fried eggs on her chest. Um, uh, it's a, a beautiful photograph and she looks so serious, uh, but it's a little bit campy at the same time. Um, and then, uh, I mean, she's had a number of egg-related uh, art pieces over the years, um, but one of the ones I talk about quite a bit in the book is A Thousand Eggs for Women. This was a performance done at art galleries all over the world where Sarah Lucas would roll up with a thousand eggs, and she allowed um, uh, people who identify as women um, or anyone wearing at least one item of stereotypically feminine clothing <laughs> or anyone dressed up as a penis to <laughs> okay. throw eggs at this specially treated gallery wall. Um, so a thousand eggs for women. And it just looked like amazing fun. Um, and the, the, there's something very um, powerful about the image of, women, the people who have eggs inside their bodies, disposing of the eggs by, uh, by throwing them at a wall. It was an act of, I mean, it seemed like an act of feminine fun and feminine rage yeah. uh, as well. And yeah. so I found it just very powerful and very fun. Um, and that's the kind of revolution I want to <laughs> be a part of, right? Um, I want to be powerful and I want to have fun. <laughs> Well, I have to tell you, this our conversation today has been really fun. I, I've just enjoyed talking to you. Um, you you just do have this very you have a wonderful sense of humor, and I've just been laughing right along with you. The book has been getting just rave reviews. Jennifer Egan, author of The Candy House, says egg is cheeky, playful, and deeply informative. In short, a complete delight. I found that to be the case too. I, I loved it. And I wonder if you'd take us out with just one final story and maybe tell us a little bit about some of the colorful colorful characters that, that you write about in, in Egg. I, I really enjoyed the KFC story. You know, it involves NASA and capitalism and fast food. And so <laughs> quite a combination. But if, if that's the one that you like, that'd be great to share. But if you have another one, that's fine to do. But maybe tell us about some of these humorous, colorful characters that, that you uh, uncovered in writing the book. Oh, sure. I could not believe how lucky I was to discover that um, eggs had been to space. Yeah. And I... 
there's a long history of eggs going to space. They were sort of stand-ins for the human body. Um, you know, if an if a, a fertilized egg can't survive in space, then surely like a full-grown human can't either. So they're part of really early um, testing of what cosmic rays would do. Um, but then I learned that um, eggs have been incubated in space. And I was lucky enough to have an interview um, with the uh, John Vellinger and Mark Deucer, who sent um, who sent eggs up. John Vellinger was a farm kid growing up in the Midwest, um, but he was really good at science. And so when he was in junior high, high school age range, his teacher suggested that he submit a project to like the NASA science fair. Um, and he did, his family raised chickens and chickens turn their eggs a couple times a day to counteract the effects of gravity on the yolk. Gravity pulls the yolk down. And if the yolk, um, hits the bottom of the shell and stays there, it can, uh, make malformed embryos basically. And so he wondered, well, what would happen to an egg in an environment without gravity? And so he designed this um, incubation system, this system for incubating eggs in space. Um, and it went through many iterations. You know, I think he, you know, he maybe didn't win the first couple times he brought it to the science fair, but he kept working on and refining this idea until finally um, he made it to a round where they tried to hook the science fair winners up with corporate sponsors to um, provide the R&D and I think also the funding to create the equipment needed. And so uh, he got flown to Louisville, Kentucky, and he met with the Kentucky Fried Chicken executives, <laughs> and they decided to fund this project. So then by this time, he was in college um, so he was taking courses in embryology and thinking really hard about um, how old the embryos should be uh, before they were shot up into space and, you know, working in the um, uh, working in the R&D lab inside Kentucky Fried Chicken, which was, you know, it was news to me that they have an R&D lab, but it <laughs> makes perfect sense, yeah, right? Yeah, you want to yeah, like, right. you're going to put an oven and... 15,000 stores, you want to know it's the right oven. Um, you want to build it to your specs. So they created this cradle to dampen the effects of um, the G-forces of takeoff, right? Getting unbroken eggs into space, like not, not easy. <laughs> right. um, and so at the end of all of this, um, they, you know, there's a little more to the story, but they shot eggs up into space and the eggs successfully um, were, you know, uh, many of them came down alive and some were dissected in the name of science and compared to the ground control eggs, the, um, the control group of eggs here on Earth. And a few of the chickens were hatched um, and they went to various uh, zoos. Of course, the first one to hatch went to the Louisville Zoo and was named Kentucky, the first <laughs> space chicken. Appropriate, yeah. <laughs> Appropriate. Yeah. And then, um, and then this pair, uh, John Vellinger, the student with the idea, and Mark Ducer, who had been in 
uh, R&D over at KFC, they went into business together and started an aerospace company that manufactures scientific equipment to be used in experiments out in space. And they're doing just amazing stuff. They're, um, they bioprinted human knee meniscus in space. They're working on ways to, uh, create, um, bioprint human organs, which has to be done in space because, um, if you think of like a 3d printer with, um, with soft plastic, right? Uh It takes uh a little while for the plastic to harden up. Um, and on earth, if you bioprinted human, if you bioprint human tissue, it can collapse under its own weight. So, I mean, that just really blew my mind. The idea that if I needed a kidney, you know, maybe in 15, 20 years, they could bioprint, they could take cells from me, clone them and bioprint a kidney for me in space. I mean, yeah. I don't know. It just totally blew my mind. Like, oh. Just that somebody would even have thought of that. Um, so, yeah. So that was just so fun. And they were um, relatable and uh, hopeful. And, um, you know, they were real, real scientists. Yeah. The story was kind of a funny story. Yeah. But they're absolutely real scientists. Yeah, yeah. And, um and they, you know, they used the momentum from that project to do, you know, just incredible stuff. Um, and I never in my life had I thought I would interview uh, somebody who had d- put anything in space. <laughs> well, so the, the it was book, a thrill. yeah, and 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 the and the book as i say is is amazing it it's uh it's very relatable as you say and and uh uh it it has a, a definite science orientation but there's a great sense of humor that you have that you share in the book too and so lizzie stark thank you so much for joining us today again the book is egg our guest has been lizzie stark we will put lots of links up to Lizzie's great work and how you can find her and read more about Egg. But I just encourage our audience to check this out. It, it's a, a wonderful, eye-opening account of uh, something we we think we understand, and uh, and it has so much more depth. But Lizzie Stark, thank you for your time. Have a great rest of your day. We sure appreciate it, and congrats on the book. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. My thanks to author, science writer, and journalist Lizzie Stark. Lizzie Stark's new book, Egg, A Dozen Overtures, was discussed today. My thanks to Harry's, created for a different shaving experience, and Next Evo Naturals, better science, smarter CBD, for sponsoring today's show. Please check out our show notes today for more information about our sponsors, and please support our sponsors and thank them for sponsoring the show. My thanks to you. My wonderful Not Old Better Show audience on radio and podcast, please be well and be safe during these times. Let's support one another and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.